Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply that proves that award season really is a year-round event. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I've been abandoned by both Mike Hogan and Richard Lawson, who are on their way to the Cannes Film Festival to go live better lives than me. But lucky for all of us, we have had a podcasting genius right here at VF.com this whole time, Joanna Robinson, Hollywood writer for VanityFair.com. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a long overdue uh, crossover that I can't believe it took so long, but I guess we had to kick the boys out to really take over properly. We had to wait for this moment for our coup. Yeah, exactly. Well, everyone is in France and not paying attention. Uh, so as you probably know, if you're listening to this, among many other talents, Joanna is very well known for her in-depth knowledge of Game of Thrones and willingness to predict that Jon Snow would come back, including making T-shirts about it, which was a bold move that totally paid off. Um, so I wanted to take advantage of Joanna's Game of Thrones knowledge and put a little gold men twist on it and uh, talk about the actors on the show who I feel like don't get as much attention as the tits and dragons, as Ian McShane might say. We want to talk about uh, how much the actors matter to the show and if they do matter, why are none of them really becoming big? stars outside of it. And we'll talk about some recent examples of that. After that, I'll check in with our friend Jordan Hoffman about the other big event of the week, the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Jordan has been to Cannes many times and likes to share all the good and glamorous and totally ridiculous stories from the place that is so fancy that they call it the Croisset. I can't say that right. Anyway. <laughs> but but first, the week in Oscar news. Joanna, because you're on and uh, we've talked about musicals a lot, I really had to take the bait of the knowledge that Tom Hooper is directing a Cats musical. Whether or not this ever even gets made or wins Oscars, we have to talk about it. So what in the world? Is this a good idea at all? It's a crazy idea, isn't it? And and what's interesting is Tom Hooper's last big stage adaptation, Les Miserables, was a very kind of staid adaptation mm-hmm. and very straightforward. And I feel like if you're going to do Cats, you should do something completely bonkers. And I'm not sure that that's Tom Hooper's approach to adaptation at all. So Whose Cats do you want to see? Like David Lynch's Cats? <laughs> I would watch, I would even watch Rob Marshall's Cats, you know, <laughs> I think that true. would be intriguing. But the, but Tom Hooper's Cats, if it's just people in cat costumes, oh, you know, what about John Favreau's Cats and it's all CGI cats? Ooh, I, you know, I liked The Jungle Book a lot. So like, maybe that's not a bad idea. <laughs> They're also bringing cats back to Broadway this summer. So like, there's kind of a revival happening. And, you know, given 80s and 90s nostalgia on the internet, like, I think now is probably the time if this movie's ever going to happen. 
I'm just not so sure it needs to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm not so sure how well it will go over with the younger crowd who didn't grow up obsessively listening to the soundtrack. Um, (laughs) And I really want to know if Tom Hooper's cats or the new stage cats will have leg warmers, because I feel like leg warmers Mm -hmm. were a really integral part of the original musical. So And like big 80s rocker hair, like sticking straight up off of your head. Exactly. Do Do you have any sense of if cats holds up? Like I haven't listened to it since I was a child, I think. I mean, I think it depends on your love of Andrew Lloyd Webber. I still love it, but I'm hopelessly spoiled by nostalgia, so I don't know. <laughs> I, know. I know. But like, there's enough of us out there that I feel like this movie could, I mean, who knows? It could be a Best Picture nominee in two years for all we know. Like, People have uh, been foolishly predicting Tom Hooper's demise for a while and look at Les Mis, so who knows? So also long-term Oscar news, because this week is a little thin for movies that are coming out this year. Uh, but I was really intrigued by the news that uh, Anthony Mackie is going to play Johnny Cochran in a biopic about a different case in the O.J. Simpson trial. It, uh, but it's another case when she was defending a black man in court and it kind of made him famous. Joanna, we've talked about Captain America Civil War. I think Anthony Mackie is one of the best things in it. I actually don't know if you share that opinion, um, but it's totally time for him to have a starring vehicle, right? Absolutely. I I think he was amazing in Civil War. And it's been really hard for a lot of the new Avengers to get a a toehold in the in the group. Scarlet Witch, Vision, even Rhodey. I I think it's been hard for them to make an impression. But Anthony Mackie is so charming. He was even great in the Adjustment Bureau, which I think most people would agree was kind of a silly premise, but he was fantastic in it. So I'm all for it. But it's going to be hard for him to top the Johnny Cochran that we saw in the FX series, I think. Yeah, no, that's the really tricky thing is Courtney B. Vance was so good as Johnny Cochran, as we uh, talked about uh, when we talked about People versus OJ on this podcast a few weeks ago, um, that that really is a towering performance to stand up against. But by the time this comes out, like, you know, playing Johnny Cochran could be like playing Nixon, like lots of people have done it to lots of different levels of success. And Anthony Mackie is playing Martin Luther King Jr. in this HBO movie about Lyndon Johnson that's coming out in just a couple of weeks. So he's uh, he's tackled some big shoes before. So we're three episodes into the new season of Game of Thrones, which you definitely would know if you have been reading VanityFair.com since we have been relentlessly covering it. Thanks in no small part to Joanna, who is the uh, the in-house expert and the person who explains to me things like who Euron Greyjoy is and all the other little nerdy details that are really <laughs> important on a show like this. But Joanna, I feel like something we haven't talked about, and I don't know if like Game of Thrones fandom talks about this at all, is the role that all of these actors are playing within this drama. And I kind of want to start with just like a very big, broad question. Is the acting on Game of Thrones important to this being a good show? That's a really good question. I think it depends on how you enjoy Game of Thrones. And and I've seen the split happening more and more as the show goes off the books, because mm-hmm. I think the show delivers two different things. There's the big ske- uh, spectacles of dragons and ice zombies and all of that. And then there's the smaller scenes where you have someone like Peter Dinklage tossing off a perfectly well-timed joke. And so those smaller, intimate, dialogue-heavy scenes, I think you definitely need a good actor in there. And then if you you just enjoy it for the spectacle, then I I suppose it just matters that they fill out their costumes. But I think you see this especially in someone like Sophie Turner, who has, you know, started the show when she was about 14 and is 20 now and has really grown into her own acting ability. And uh, Sansa's role has gotten more interesting, but, but especially because Sophie Turner has become a better actress, that that whole storyline is more engrossing, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, with a lot of these kids, like her and um, Maisie Williams, who was also cast as a child, and, you know, we're even learning about um, Isaac Hempstead Wright. That's the guy who plays Bran, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're kind of like learning about how they're growing into these roles. But then, I mean, Peter Dinklage was an established presence. He was probably the the only star, really, when the show began. Maybe Sean Bean, who uh, didn't make it to the end of the first season. <laughs> uh, but then, you know, people right. like Lena Headey and um, or Nikolai Kostarwada, like they have these really good meaty roles in the show. And to some extent, I think that they're really good. But I don't know if I can tell if they're like great actors from this or not or if it's just the kind of the attachment to the characters i mean this might happen with anyone who plays a well-known character but i mean do you feel like you know this i feel like i know it about lena Headey. i think cersei has had or she's made enough of cersei's role for nicolai costa waldo you know i think we've seen it in other films that he's done that he actually is a good actor but i think he could skate uh by on just being charming and looking good with a sword in his hand if he wanted to (laughs) but but he's brought extra he's brought something extra to it is what you're thinking I think so. I think that role. I think also I, I would say the same is true of Kit Harrington. I, I really had a hard time latching onto him as Jon Snow in the beginning. And I think he's really grown into that as well. And then, you know, the show keeps staffing up these really great actors uh, for smaller roles like mm-hmm. Jonathan Price or this season. We've got Max von Sydow and Ian McShane. So I think they really are putting an emphasis on bringing in these well-trained actors, you know, especially, um, you know, with Charles Dance as Tywin Lannister. I think that was huge important uh, for that role. Yeah, I mean, I think you've, you've felt the show shift, like whenever Charles Dance and Peter Dinklage had a scene together as a Tywin and Tyrion Lannister, like it really went into a whole different register and you were like, oh yeah, okay, that's why they're the, you know, revered actors, not that, you know, the other people on the show aren't capable of doing that at some point. Exactly. And not to throw any anyone specifically under the bus, but I think one of the issues in the much reviled Dorn plot last season was <laughs> those actresses, the dialogue wasn't great, but those actresses are also weren't maybe making everything they could have out of that. They looked the part, yeah. but they weren't selling that dialogue at all. So. Which is crazy because one of them is Keisha Castle-Hughes, who is an Oscar nominee to bring it back to the overarching theme of this podcast. And she just did exactly. not, like, I, think I was so excited for the impact she could make in there. And then for, you know, I guess many, there were many reasons that Dorn didn't pan out, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. But but I, I think that some actors, like like let's say Pedro Pascal, mm-hmm. who could have sold any line to you, I yeah. think, in his one season on Game of Thrones. So I think there are performers who could, because Game of Thrones, let's admit it, sometimes has some some really hard lines to toss off. <laughs> and um, I think some actors are, are more up for the challenge than others. Well, Pedro Pascal is kind of my number one example of the weird effect I think this show has. And I think it's part of a larger system of how stardom works and how kind of franchises are stars and star individual stars aren't. But uh, Pedro Pascal made such an impact when he showed up as Oberyn Martell on the show. He just really seemed like this huge star in the making. And it's been, I mean, two years since he was killed off, I think. And like, where, like, why hasn't he built off of that? Like, wh- why isn't he leading movies the way that it seemed like he should be? Well, I mean, he was cast, he has been cast in the new Kingsman sequel. Whether or not that is a star-making turn, I don't know. But I'm excited to see him in a, in a tuxedo, yep. uh, potentially... murdering people. But, you know, his choice to go to Netflix to do Narcos, which has been a really under the radar show for Netflix. It has a very passionate fan base, but a small one, I think. Or I don't know. We No one knows Netflix's numbers, but (laughs) Narcos is certainly not broken out the way that Orange the New Black or or some of the other ones has. And so that was his choice. That's what he wanted to do. I will say my brother-in-law really wanted me to watch Narcos. So someone's watching this. I mean, Chris Ryan and Andy Greenwald can't stop talking about how much they love Narcos. So there are people out there who love Narcos, but (laughs) 
that's not where I would have wanted Pedro Pascal to go. I would have wanted him to go somewhere uh, where I got, I was really excited to see him and I, I just didn't connect with Narcos. So yeah. But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question, but I mean, there are a lot of actors on the show who have landed big roles like Amelia Clark in the, in the Terminator reboot. They just necessarily, they haven't necessarily gone anywhere. Yeah. Or know? even like Richard Madden, who played Rob Stark, he was the prince in Cinderella, which was this huge hit last year. But I kind of had to remind myself that he was in that movie and I liked him in it. But it just like the effect that it had on building a career for him seemed to be non-existent. But I mean, that role wasn't all, all that complex. He no. just had to smile and look good in a in a uniform, which he did. So. Yeah. No, he, he pulled it off <laughs> spectacularly. I mean, Sophie Turner is going to be a really interesting example. She's in X-Men Apocalypse, which comes out in a couple of weeks. And she's playing this kind of iconic X-Men role. Like she seems to be being set up as part of this younger generation of heroes who are going to, you know, maybe carry the franchise forward. So. So, like, if she pulls it off, maybe then this, like, mini curse that I'm making up is broken? I mean, I I don't know. It's interesting that you call it a mini curse. I think part of it is, I mean, you would expect it would happen earlier than six season in, but I think part of it is TV actors not quite knowing which projects to pick. I mean, mm-hmm. I think Amelia Clark saying yes to Terminator was a no-brainer. I think she had to try it if yeah. she was you know, asked to be Sarah Connor, she's going to try to be Sarah Connor. But, uh, you know, I remember talking to Maisie Williams about one of the first films that she was offered after Game of Thrones broke out, and she just said yes to it. And I think when she was talking to me about it, she admitted that it wasn't, like, necessarily a great film, but she just said yes because she didn't know. And I think now these actors are probably... It's called Heat Stroke. It came out in 2013. And I think now <laughs> these actors are probably trying to pick their roles a little bit more carefully, and I think Maisie Williams and Kit Harington have said as much. Whether or not that careful choice uh, winds up leading them to stardom, I don't know, but... Uh, you know, I, I think that they are seeing the light. Of, you know, there's only what two, one and a half more seasons of Game of Thrones. When that show ends, they will want to have a film, a firm purchase on the Hollywood sensibility outside of their roles in Game of Thrones. And I think they're they're being more cautious. Hopefully, yeah. With I mean, what they pick. like Rose Leslie has showed up in various movies to you know whatever limited degree of effect. I mean, I guess Natalie Dormer has been in the Hunger Games movies, but. In a somewhat small role, like you know, they've popped up lots of places. They're making choices, and Peter Dinklage, essentially, he like had a pretty strong film career before, and I can't think of anything really big that he's done since Game of Thrones began. So, you know, at a certain level, like you don't need to if you're Peter Dinklage or Charles Dance or Ian McShane. You're right that they are making. Maybe my whole thesis is wrong, and they are just making odd decisions or or decisions that seem like good decisions. Because who can tell necessarily yeah. looking at a script? But Charles Dance and Lena Headey were just in Pride and Prejudice and Zombies, which didn't oh, yeah. make the impact I think people were hoping it would. I forgot that movie happened. <laughs> Natalie Dormer seems to be stuck in thinking that she that horror is her mm-hmm. is her thing because she did that Suicide Forest movie, and then she's got another zombie one with Matt Smith coming up. But what's interesting, you know, I remember this article on The Hollywood Reporter a couple years ago where they were talking about why are the Game of Thrones actors being cast in these movies and the Walking Dead stars aren't because Walking Dead is actually a bigger show than Game of Thrones. And the Walking Dead cast is even less, making even less of an impact in the film world. And part of it had to do with the fact that the poor Walking Dead, it was a theory from a casting director that the poor Walking Dead people have to be covered in mud and blood and sweat all the time. And so they just don't look appealing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the Game of Thrones people at least get to look glamorous in their gowns and their wigs. Yeah. 
But I mean, that is interesting to me. Of course, like the, the fluidity between film and t- TV is, is, you know, thinner than ever. And the fact that the biggest stars on television are not breaking out is so fascinating. Maybe it's just the, the idea that, you know, as as we lose this idea of star quality in Hollywood, which has been talked about over and over again, that there are no more movie stars, maybe there are no more TV stars. Because, yeah. I mean, even Brian Cranston, I mean, I, he was nominated for an Oscar last year, so I'm not going to say he's not making an impact, but he's, I think, less impactful now than he was as Walter White, for sure. Yeah, so. because those characters kind of swallow you in a way. And, like, these Game of Thrones people, yeah. even if, you know, they never have a role that's nearly as good again, like... uh uh, Ewan, how do you pronounce the name of the guy who plays Ramsey? It's very Welsh. Ewan Rowan. Oh boy. Ewan Rowan. So he'll be able to, you know, go to conventions and, and uh, panel conversations for the rest of his life and talk about being Ramsey on Game right. of Thrones. So there's kind of a bigness to these roles that maybe make it intimidating to start another career. Or, or just, yeah, that Kit Harrington will always be Jon Snow, no matter what he does. Mm-hmm. He could have the biggest like movie career of his life, and there will still be a certain subset of the of the audience that will always call him Jon Snow. Hey, Will forever. Smith is still the Fresh Prince in a lot of quarters, so, you know, you never... <laughs> <laughs> so if you were to put uh, your money on it and say, you know, 10 years from now, which of these actors will we still have around and will we kind of, like have an impact on film culture or, you know, be a star on some level uh, other than Peter Dinklage. Is there anyone who you'd really put your money on? You know, my I, I have hopes for Pedro Pascal. Mm-hmm. I have hopes for Lena Headey because I think she's so talented. And but in terms of the younger stars, uh, you know, Maisie Williams, I think, really does have an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And she's she's been very canny with how she interacts with new media. So I think, you know, she's got, she does YouTube things all the time and Snapchat and all that sort of thing. And as Hollywood increasingly pivots towards new media and and young stars who are savvy and using that, I think Maisie Williams has a real shot there. And she's also quite talented. Yeah. I I think I'm with you on Maisie Williams. I'm also holding a candle for uh, Alfie Allen, who plays Theon, just because I really like him and... Yeah, I'm happy to see him great. back doing things this season. You know, it's interesting. You know, Gwendolyn Christie is one of these people who movie projects. You know, both the Hunger Games and Star Wars. They they want to cast her. Mm-hmm. They want everyone loves Gwendolyn Christie. They want to use her. I don't think anyone's figured out quite how to use her as well as Game of Thrones sometimes does. Mm-hmm. But I think there is a a want on both the audience side and the Hollywood side to make something of Gwendolyn Christie because she's so striking and and so wonderful. So, yeah, it had yeah. been a while since she had a good scene, and then. Um, I think in the first or second episode of the season when she finally finds Sansa and, and kind of has the oath moment and it's so good and you're like, oh yeah, that's why everyone, that's why they wanted to put her in Star Wars and keep her under a helmet the whole time just to like have her presence in a movie. That's why everyone was so sad that she was just watching a candle all last season. <laughs> well, she's somehow coming back in um, the site in the next Star Wars movie. So I guess we have something to look forward to. Maybe she'll, uh, Absolutely. she won't get thrown on a garbage shoot next time. <laughs> So as you hear this, the Cannes Film Festival is in full swing over in France. I am not there. Mike and Richard are there as discussed. And uh, to help keep me company, I have enlisted the help of Jordan Hoffman, who is a, uh, a contributor to VanityFair.com, a friend of ours. And uh, who Jordan, you've been to Cannes. You've, you've been in the room where it happens. 
I have. I've been to Cannes um, thrice, in fact, and I have every intention on going again. It really is a great time and quite an experience. Every, everything they say about Cannes is true. Well, the reason that I wanted to bring you here is because you've both been to Cannes and you kind of approach it both with a healthy respect for, you know, the Todd Haynes's and the Wong Kar Wai's and all the fancy people, but also as a normal human who is going to eat a baguette for dinner and then tell me about it and, you know, help me understand <laughs> the real experience of Cannes. So, I mean, what people see and what I see is mostly pictures of beautiful people in incredible clothes on a red carpet and yachts. Is, is that is anything about that what your experience of Cannes is? And let's put it this way. If I'm there for the full you know, 12 days, 11 of those days is not. But there's a, there are a couple of moments where you go, hey, you know, I'm, I'm on the, I'm in the, the, the Cote d'Azur. Um, I haven't been on a yacht party, but I've been on a party that was like on a floaty thing. Uh, I guess like a pier, like a, like a makeshift pier. Okay, okay. And I was wearing, uh, you know, I, I was wearing nice clothing and so was everyone else. And there were bold-faced names around me that were relatively approachable if I wanted to be so gauche. Uh, so, yeah, it can be nice. Um, the thing about can is, um, well, there are a lot of things about can, but as far <laughs> as I can tell, you can't just go. You can't just go. Like, you can't just be like, hey, I'm in France. I want to go see a movie now yeah. to the main event. There are a lot of sidebars at Cannes, and that, there can lead to some confusion, so I do want to touch upon that. But the main event at Le Palais du Cinéma, the big red carpet thing, you can't just buy a ticket. It's invitation only. So that means if you're a member of the press or industry, you can go, or if you were handed a ticket by someone, you can go. But this leads to one of Cannes' greatest quirks, Katie. Um, for the special premieres, and for those where uh, men must wear black tie and women must look elegant, and we remember last year there was the whole to-do about the shoes, right? Yes, you have to wear heels if you're a woman on the can red carpet. Well, that is not exactly true, and they will tell you that that's false, but there is a perception that you have to wear heels, and some of the guards believed that, and they denied entry to, to some women who were wearing flats, and the woman was like, you know, I'm a, I'm a diabetic, I have to wear special kinds of shoes, and they were like, no, no, madame, you must leave, <laughs> and that caused a little bit of a hubbub. So this year it's going to be, I'm curious to see what happens. However, my point is, you do have to... You know, you can't you can't walk in wearing shorts, and that's you know even I, who's one of uh, cinema's greatest uh, slobs, <laughs> even I agree that you should try to dress up for the for these shows. But what happens is there are a lot of people who are begging for these tickets. Well, begging, you know, politely asking if there are extras, and it works. But what you do is you got to get it hours in advance, and you got to be ready. So a lot of times, as you're exiting a press screening, there's a certain because of the security, you have to exit a certain way, and you'll go past a gauntlet of usually young, but not always, people in their fi in their finest duds in evening gowns and tuxedos holding homemade signs asking for, you know, s'il vous plaît, uh, an extra invitation. Uh, and it's adorable. And sometimes they draw little little cartoons. Like, for example, if it's, um, you know, there's always a, well, not always, but there's frequently a Woody Allen film. So I remember one time there was a young woman, a young, beautiful, 25-year-old French woman in an evening gown at 2 o'clock in the afternoon in the blazing sun with a little cartoon she had made of Woody Allen. Please, may I have a ticket? And it's hilarious. And these kids get in sometimes. And they, they have to hang around all day in a tux, in the heat, hoping to get in. And that's... Uh, 
something that happens because, you know, you get six tickets and then somebody chooses to go out to dinner instead and then you give one away. Are these kids like from Nice down the road or are people like flying in from New York to do this? I would imagine that most of them are locals, but I think there are a few who get, you know, actually I met a kid, you know, can like all these festivals, they have like special outreach programs where you can volunteer, maybe not at the festival, but some company that's there. And I remember I met a kid who um, is is fond of film, and he's in college, and he you know he follows all the film critics on on Twitter. So he follows Richard, and he follows me, and he follows you probably, and all the other uh, Schmendricks. And um, I was gabbing with him because it's very rare that I meet someone who's who in the flesh who knows who I am. So I get very excited when I do, and. Um, he told me that, you know, he didn't have passes to anything. His his being in Cannes was just to soak it up and to fetch bottled water for people during the hours he was supposed to. But he hung around out front and he got in yeah. to a few big films. So it happened. And even in the hanging around, like, are you going to catch a glimpse of Kate Blanchett, like, wandering up the steps of the palais? Uh, if you're standing in the right spot, yes. I mean, there is security and there's a there's a million gawkers. But if you're in the right spot, you're going to see fancy people at Le Palais. The, the Palais is a weird thing because it's, it's, it's gorgeous in the front and in the rear, it's a big parking lot and a convention center. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, it's like a mullet, right? It's business up front, party in the back. It's the reverse of that, I guess. Um, because in the back, it's facing the water and there are these tents and there are beautiful spots for photo ops. But part of Cannes, uh, and an important part is what's called the market, where, you know, as you follow the news over the next uh, X amount of days, you know, we're going to be hearing about the new films that are premiering and then everybody's opinions and then all the gowns and whatnot. But all these deals are going to be announced. It actually, it happened today and the festival hasn't even started yet officially. So-and-so production company announces they're doing this movie with so-and-so. And these are all the deals that are happening in the marketplace. And the marketplace is a real, it's like, well, Wonka factory. It's downstairs <laughs> And it's it's like a convention center, like anything else. And there are booths of every production company from all over the world, which makes it great because you have the Film Commission of Estonia next to the Film Commission from Malawi next to everything else. And um, they have up all their posters of the films they want to try and get set up. And at least 75% of them are never going to happen. And of that 75%, of the 25% that are going to happen, 80% of them are like awful Dolph Lundgren films. <laughs> and so there are all these posters of just like asinine direct-to-video schlock. And it always makes for great, you know, great photo ops to get your picture taken in front of something like that. And this is why you see things like big posters for The Expendables 3 hanging over can, right? Like they're advertising exactly. these garbage movies alongside exactly. the Todd exactly. Haynes it's, it's, thing. It's, um, you know, if you, if you know anything about the, the producers Golan and Globus, uh, which were huge in the 70s, 80s, and even into the early 90s, and there was a documentary made about them recently called, uh, called The Go-Go Boys, which was a fun documentary. And that's what they, they, they sort of, you know, spearheaded this. They would come, come to Cannes with, you know, a poster and half an idea and a couple of their you know, roster of actors, people like uh, Chuck Norris and whatnot, and they would leave Cannes with six movies ready to go. And, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, it's, it's, you know where, where else are, is the Ukrainian mafia going to launder their money if not in a, in a Chuck Norris movie? So, you know, that's... Uh, so just because it's France doesn't mean it's all fancy is what... No, no, not at all. Not at all. I mean, from that aspect. But I will say, though, that in the in the competition films and in the other sidebars, there is a level of quality that 
is unparalleled at any of the other festivals. I regularly attend uh, Sundance and the Toronto Film Festival, the New York Film Festival, and others. And Cannes is, is from my experience, far and away uh, superior. Even um, even when a bad movie plays at Cannes, and, and they do, you always know why it's there. It's either it's either a filmmaker of uh, you know who once had legendary stature, you know, which is why you'll sit through another Adam McGoyan film, even though he hasn't made a good movie in a decade. He once was great, or it's a movie where you say, "Well, at least I see what they were going with that." You know, there was, you know, um, I didn't think Gaspar Noé's Love was anything terrific, but. I respect the 3D hardcore pornography as as much as the next guy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I can see why they would program it. The other myth, which is not a myth, which is true, is I'm sure people want, well, do they really boo movies at Cannes? Mm-hmm. And I'm here to report that they do. Now, it's one thing to boo a movie at the press and industry screening. Now, you're wondering, do they really boo the movies when it's the premiere and the directors are actually in the room. And the answer to that is also yes. I've witnessed it. I saw a movie a few years ago, and it was good. I mean, it wasn't a masterpiece, but I, you know, I, I'd give it name, a... Uh, name the movie. What was the movie? It was called Nothing Bad Can Happen. It was a German film, which did get a small distribution here in the U.S. And I forget the director's name. It was a German woman. The biggest night of her life, her whole career. And the movie ends, and there was a smattering applause smattering applause, and then there were a bunch of jokers who were booing. And I was looking right at her, and I said, this is horrible. There you boo-. And it seems like the cast gets up there, and a bunch of snots are booing her. Now, is this part of the famed and, you know, legendary blood sport that is can? And you have to, if you're going to come to the dance, you got to come correct? Well, that's open for interpretation. <laughs> but personally, I found that to be a little... A little on the uncouth side. What do you What do you think, Katie? Would you Would you feel uncomfortable in a situation? I like would. That? I would probably feel uncomfortable because I'm a southerner and I was raised to be really polite. But when uh, you know <laughs> things like last year when uh, Gus Van Sant's Sea of Trees premiered with uh, Matthew McConaughey oh. and who's the other star in that? Somebody else. Ken Watanabe. And there there was a there was a woman in there, but I don't remember who it was. Yeah, and that movie got. I mean, from what people said, they got it got booed for ten minutes straight. Like. <laughs> Well, I, I didn't go to that. There, I went to the. It's funny you should say that, because uh, I went to the second one, and the funny. And I went in knowing I'm like, ah, this movie got booed really badly last night. Let's see how bad it is. And the first half of the movie is not that bad. And I'm thinking, boy, what a bunch of jerks. And then the second half of the movie, I'm like, ugh, they had every right to. Like, that's one where they can boo. McConaughey can take the hit. Gus Van Sant. Maybe those guys can boo. Some German director you never heard of. Yeah. Of, uh, you know, leave her alone. Gus Van Sant and McConaughey, they had every right to boo that movie. It's god-awful. And, and, and uh, I don't think you'll ever see it. It's hidden. It'll never come out. It's, it's just dreadful. Isn't this why we kind of give extra credit to especially American directors and stars who come over there with a movie? Like, you know, Woody Allen is his own case, and, you know, he, he'll, his movies will play at Cannes for the rest of time. But, you know, Adam Driver's got a movie at Cannes, and that makes him interesting. Or Kristen Stewart's with Olivia Assayas again. Like, it is a hard standard to beat. Like, if your movie was a Sundance hit, like, oh, great. You know, lots of movies are Sundance hits. But if your movie does well at Cannes, like, yeah. or, or if your movie doesn't do well, everyone will know about it. Like, it's a high-risk, high-reward kind of thing. Yeah, you're right. But keep in mind, though, uh, yes, you're absolutely right, because although there are always many American films there, you know, and they've done well over the years, that, you know, you look at the winners of the Palme d'Or, and, and I think America is right behind France um, in terms of winners. So there are there are always some American films, whereas, you know, some years, like last year, there was nothing from Britain. Uh, you know, some countries get shut out. It is often director-focused. So you mentioned Adam Driver. 
to the to the can goer, that's not the Adam Driver movie. That's the Jim Jarmusch movie, and Jim Jarmusch is a veteran. You know, he was there. He's been there since his career started. I think. I think Stranger Than Paradise played a uh, played a can back in the day, and if not, um, certainly many of his other ones have. So it's not like it's pretty rare for just you know just a, a sort of a random American movie to show up. Like Loving this year is playing, mm-hmm. but Jeff Nichols has had, had Mud played there. You know, so it's kind of like here is a club. There definitely is a club uh, with the competition films, and there's no point in denying that. Egoyan is part of the club. That's why his dreadful movies get in. <laughs> the Dardenne brothers always get, get their films in competition. Luckily, the Dardenne brothers are quite good. Last, the, Their most recent one was the um, one with... Um, Two Days, One Night. Marion Cotillard. Yeah, got, and she got an Oscar nomination for that role. Yes, yes, and it's a great film. Yeah. And their new one will be great, uh, great too. They do a very specific thing, but they do it quite well. Well, here's another thing, uh, speaking of random movies that show up there, because you do get things like Kung Fu Panda, and this year the BFG is playing uh, there. And like, Okay, well, I'm glad you brought that up, Katie, because that is not a competition film. I, I know. I want... I want to very quickly uh, elucidate for the listeners what the difference is between a competition film at Cannes and what movies that just show up at Cannes and make a big stink and get a lot of press and can later say, oh, it played at Cannes. Not really true. Kung Fu Panda being a great example. This year, Money Monster, The Nice Guys, Mm -hmm. Cafe Society, which is Woody Allen's new one, which is opening, and the BFG, which might be good. I mean, you know, hey, this Spielberg kid, he he, he might be onto something. (laughs) But those are out-of-competition films that are there because it's a good place to launch a movie. It brings in big stars, and it's, you know, it's good for everybody to have them show up. I don't think... They, I'd like to think that they don't just let anything into these out-of-competition uh, slots, although there have been some notorious stinkers. I was there the year that um, The Grace, Grace of Monaco with Ooh, Nicole Kidman played, yeah. which notorious. was an atrocity, uh, truly, truly an atrocity. I can understand why they programmed it, because it's Nicole Kidman, and it's set, Monaco uh, is like a 10, well, I don't know about 10, but... Uh, uh, a very brief drive away from Cannes. It's down the block, so to speak. You, just, you know, uh, you know, hewed to the side of the, of the of the water there, and the next thing you know, you're in Monaco. So I can understand why they would have done it. Now, in addition to the competition films, and this year there are 22 films that are part of the competition. And by the way, this is another thing. Years, you know, from now on, any film that played this year in the competition will later boast on the IMDb and in other press releases, they'll say, oh, it was nominated for the Palm d'Or. And that sounds like, oh, crap, I got nominated for the Palm d'Or, like for the Oscar, you know, nominated for Best Actress. That's five people, so it must be really good. Well, anything that's <laughs> in competition can call themselves nominated for the Palm d'Or. So it's kind of... You know, it's it's very sort of legalese, I guess you want to say. There are 22 movies in competition. Not all of them when, are in the final uh, showdown. In 22 out of 100 submitted, presumably, though. Yeah, but when you, does it, does it, when you hear nominated for the Palme d'Or versus was in competition at Cannes, the first one sounds a lot nicer, doesn't it? Sure. Yeah, all right. Well, I just, I just want to keep everybody honest, that's all. So in addition to the, um, the main films in the competition, there is a, a side bar, which is sort of like second best, which is called Un Certain Regard, which means a special look, which are, you know, sometimes movies by younger directors or movies that, you know, for whatever reason, didn't make it into the main 
the main show. And every year there's one or two movies where everybody's all up in arms. How is it that that played in certain regard when such and such a stinker was in competition? This is an outrage. It should be reversed. And this year there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. There's 20 films in the uncertain regard that are, you know, kind of like a, a step down. You know, they play in the smaller house in Le Palais. Now it gets even even crazier. There are two additional sidebars which do not show in Le Palais. They play either they're in one of two theaters down La Croisette, which is the main boulevard on the side of the water, one of which is called the, um, uh, my French pronunciation is not so hot, the Canzien uh, de Realisateurs, which means Director's Fortnight. And there are some really great movies that play in Director's Fortnight. For example, last year, Embrace of the Serpent, which was nominated for a Best Foreign Language Oscar, a Colombian film, which is one of my favorite movies of this year. In previous years, that weirdo movie with all done in sign language called The Tribe. Uh, you know, a lot of really good, I mean, you know, these are foreign films that don't make a big splash in the U.S., but, but a lot of really good movies playing Directors Fortnite. And then there's even another sidebar which is called the uh, International Critics Week. Those are usually newer filmmakers, but oftentimes some really good movies. For example, Melanie Laurent's film Breathe, which I thought was terrific, played there, and uh, you know the, uh, some other smaller films, but, but nothing to ignore. So again, so now we're talking like, oh, there are 22 movies in competition, but I've now added on an additional 50. Plus, there's what's called the Cannes Classics, where they show every year, you know, great historic, you know, finally you have an opportunity to see this beloved uh, older film in, in the best projection, the best uh, audio, and these are movies that frequently make their way, make their rounds to repertory theaters on like new 4K DCPs and whatnot. So so there's a lot going on in, in an average year is what I'm saying. All right. So the can's about, can's kicking off, the people are getting distracted by the red carpets and the dresses. Like what's the, what's your word of the wise for watching the next couple of days of coverage? Like what, what do you look, look out for? How do you know if like a can movie that's successful there is something you're ever going to need to know about? Well, that I mean, it's it's really uh, it's true because there are there pretty much anything in competition will eventually, you know, those are the movies that are gonna, you know, there are only so many films from foreign countries that make it over here and make noise, and usually they're one of the Cannes competition films. The ones that are English language this year, and there are a few. We mentioned it earlier: the Jim Jarmusch film Patterson with with Adam Driver. There's Loving. Uh, Jeff Nichols, which is about a um, famous case of the first interracial marriage that tried to that they, in the South that caused all kinds of problems uh, historically. Not the first interracial marriage, but the uh, the interracial marriage that made it legal in the, in all over the country. Right. There's an Andrea Arnold film. It's called American Honey. Um, actually, looking at it now, there really aren't too many English language. Oh, there's a Neon Demon also, the new one from Nicholas uh, Winding Refn, and then Personal Shopper which is the Olivier Assaye with uh, Kristen Stewart, which um, might have a wee bit of French in there. And then there are some, you know, stars of international cinema. Pedro Almodovar has a new one. Um, he's sort of a legend Spanish filmmaker who's been around since the early 1980s. And his new one is, is considered to be a real contender this year. The Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi, whose name I'm probably pronouncing terribly, is the fellow who made um, A Separation a few years ago, which won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language. He's got a new one. And then two great Romanian filmmakers, if you, if you like that sort of thing. I do. Christian Mungio and Christy Puiu both have new ones there. So 
they might box each other out. Who knows? You know, double double Romania. But in terms of where I go personally, I mean, I like to follow the critics that I like and I trust, and um, and then then see what they have to think. You know. Well, we will have lots of can coverage at VF.com, and uh, Jordan, I assume you'll be reading it right alongside or alongside the rest of us, and then. Uh, We'll be back in like November talking about these movies that got buzz starting at Cannes and they're going to all get win Oscars, right? That's how well, it, they, at least they are, sort of goes of that way. Many of will, them will still be in the mix. Sometimes there's a year delay, right? Um, That's true. The Clouds of Sils Maria hung around for a year before it, it, it made its, its U.S. debut. So sometimes they linger. But, I mean, a lot of these are ones that, you know, there only are five movies that get nominated for Best Foreign Language. So, you know, a lot of them will be in contention for that, for their country's official push. But a lot of great performances uh, come out of these also. Well, and last year, I mean, Mad Max Fury Road was one of those big, like, hey, what's this Hollywood movie doing at Cannes premieres? And uh, it got a Best Picture nomination. So you, you kind of never know where the route's going to take Maybe the you. Nice Guys. Who knows? I hear hey. the Nice Guys is good. I'm seeing it uh, tomorrow. I, right. I don't know. Well, Jordan, thank you for explaining Cannes. I'm, I may be a little less jealous of not seeing the uh, concrete back entrance to the Palais. But uh, <laughs> I will also look forward <laughs> you to know, you returning. You know, I didn't returning. mention the food. <laughs> right, you really, want to very food. quickly know about the food? Yeah. What's the best thing besides the baguette? The baguette. Baguettes are really good. You know, uh, uh, it's funny. I mean, even just to give a piece of bread and a piece of and some butter is just really good there. But there's a, there's one thing which is kind of fun because it's open late. There's a there's um, kind of deep in the little town. And Cannes is a lovely town, and there's some older streets. There's a little section where there's some bars that are open late. And then there's a little um, square. And on one side of the square, there there are two kebab stands on either side of the square, right? And one kebab uh, is a Turkish kebab place, and the other kebab place is an Armenian kebab place. Ooh. And they're, like, staring each other down. And as you know, historically, <laughs> these are not two people that have, have gotten along over the years. As far as I can tell, because I've, I've eaten at both many, many times, because it's one of the few things that's open at 1 o'clock in the morning, they taste exactly the same. I wouldn't tell either of them that, but they taste exactly the same. But they're fabulous. The guy at the Armenian place, he's a little nicer. He, he at least pretends to remember me every year. Oh. So I like going there, because he, he's my friend, come sit down, you know, I get one of those. So that, that, that always works wonders on me. Well, if you need uh, kebab recommendations and you're going to Cannes, I guess uh, tweet at Jordan Hoffman and he'll uh, <laughs> Yeah, I'll, you I'll direct you to, to, to the square, especially if it's late at night. Just follow the scent. It's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous scent. It really is. I mean, French perfume is one thing, but Armenian kebabs at 1 o'clock in the morning is something else. <laughs> well, Jordan, uh, I look forward to you returning to Cannes next year, and uh, thank you for uh, keeping us informed on this side of the ocean. You got it. Well... And finally, it all comes down to this, the best picture. And the nominees are... And now before we go, we are going to take another opportunity to change recent Oscar history and decide who really should have won a particular race. And because uh, Joanna is here and uh, we have had a longstanding disagreement about the quality of one James Cameron movie, Avatar, we're going to take a look back at what won Best Picture in 1998, which, of course, was the year that Titanic actually did win Best Picture, unlike Avatar. As a reminder, the other nominees that year, Titanic won. Uh, it beat out as good as it gets. The Full Monty, Goodwill Hunting, and L.A. Confidential. Joanna, you picked this uh, this year to discuss. So uh, what do you think should have won Best Picture? I would put my heart, 
behind LA Confidential. Um, mm. I think, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit off air. I know your love for Titanic is very strong. <laughs> and <laughs> as you pointed out, history is on your side. Kate and Leo are huge stars. That movie is a classic. People don't talk about LA Confidential the same way they talk about Titanic. But I really did feel like it was an emphasis on spectacle, which is not spectacle isn't always bad, but it was an emphasis. It was the most obvious movie. It was so big. It felt mm-hmm. so obvious. I mean, like the biggest movie of all time, like, like an unbelievably <laughs> obvious. Yeah. And I guess the Oscars should award that, but I, you know, I got to say LA Confidential, uh, Goodwill Hunting, the, I was rooting for those movies, uh, so much more than I was for Titanic back in 1998 when I was 17 years old. I was a weird 17 year old because <laughs> everyone else, every other 17 year old was rooting for Titanic and I was no, pulling for like, LA Confidential. You were like too cool for it. It's, uh, I'm actually, in looking back, I'm surprised that I didn't think I was too cool for Titanic because I, I totally would have felt that way about so many other things at the time, but it, it totally just hit me at the exact right time somehow. Um, I haven't really looked I haven't really rewatched either Goodwill Hunting or LA Confidential almost since then, probably at least within a couple of years. But LA Confidential especially, I have like really warm memories of it. I really like that movie. Have you looked at it recently? Like does it hold up as well as I think it does? Yeah, I looked at it like oh, a couple years ago. And it and it really did hold up for me. And you know, as much as we talk about Titanic launching, really launching Kate and Leo into the stratosphere. You know, LA Confidential did give us Russell Crowe. Yeah, and Guy Pierce. And Guy Pierce, exactly. And the tendency to not trust James Cromwell. But, um, <laughs> so soon after Babe. Yeah. He earned so much goodwill with Babe and then just took it all away. <laughs> And Goodwill Hunting gave us Matt and Ben, you know, mm-hmm. so there's there was a lot, you know, and, and they got their loves, right? Like um, Ellie Confidential got Best Supporting Actress and Goodwill Hunting got Best Supporting Actor. So they got they got some Oscar love. But I don't know. Once again, I just have to say Titanic felt like really just the big, obvious shining star. And I wanted something a little bit more filmic. And maybe it's maybe I'm falling into that category we always talk about in terms of Hollywood being in love with movies about movies. Mm-hmm. And since, you know, hookers cut to look like Lana Turner are part of L.A. Confidential, it feels all part of that Hollywood noir scene that that Oscar voters tend to love. So I don't know why that didn't quite work for them that year. Yeah, I wonder if, you know, if L.A. Confidential had won, if the artist would have then seemed like even more indulgent as another movie about Hollywood or Argo, for that matter. Because you're right, that is like a, right. a tendency. I mean, L.A. Confidential is a very good movie. and doesn't isn't like a love letter to Hollywood in the way that some of those are. So it's not quite as self-congratulatory as good as it gets. It's a pretty self-congratulatory entry in this category. <laughs> Although I really I like I love broadcast news so much that I kind of look back in astonishment that this movie was in that category at all because it's so it's like a small rom-com, really. And it, there were only five nominees back then. It's like Silver Linings Playbook. If Silver Linings Playbook had been one of five instead of one of nine or whatever, it's impressive. I mean, who knew that Skeet Ulrich would ever be uh, in an Oscar nominated movie? <laughs> Greg <so>. Kinnear. <laughs> And uh, do you, I, I have I saw the full Monty at the time. I have not. I maybe have not thought of it since. How in the world did this happen? Do you remember like how the full Monty wound up as a Best Picture nominee? That was the era when the feel good movies, the feel good British movies about coal miners doing something <laughs> fun, were all the rage. You know, there was like Brassed Off and. You know, Waking Ned Divine, I think, was a big deal. So mm-hmm. I just think this working class UK movie was part of a part of such a trend at the time. Yeah. No, I, and Billy Elliot came a couple years later, but might have been like the uh, the ultimate example of that genre. 
Um, I think I remember having the VHS for the Full Monty, and there was like an ad for Brast Off beforehand. Like that is my entire knowledge of that movie. <laughs> my my last pitch for Titanic is just it is big and it was really obvious, but there's a big part of me that thinks that's what the Oscars are for. That like when something is a giant pop culture phenomenon, you kind of don't have a choice but to acknowledge it. Which one of the reasons I was really pulling for The Force Awakens to get a Best Picture nominee this year, even though I didn't think it was the Best Picture of the year, just that you know it kind of had its place in history and. Uh, I do appreciate the Titanic is both this huge cultural touchstone and kind of an anomaly. It's the last like big sweeping epic like this to win Best Picture. Like they just don't they literally don't make them like this anymore. And they kind of stopped doing it immediately after. So I'm pretty grateful for its weird little spot. I mean, it won a year after the English patient. So at the time, it kind of looked like more of a trend than it really turned out to be. Um, So I'm glad it kind of marked that moment in history. But, you know, would you consider Return of the King to be a big sweeping epic or not because it's genre like a genre film. Yeah, it's a big sweeping epic, but with the genre element. And like Gladiator is like a big sweeping epic, but with like action added to it. Like the whole idea of like a big historical romance, which is, you know, the Gone with the Wind format that really kind of established Hollywood's identity just like doesn't exist. And like Pearl Harbor did it. And then after that, everyone's like, nope, we're going to do something else. And, you know, the Oscars have gotten way more interesting for it. Like No Country for Old Men is such a weird Best Picture winner compared to Titanic, but I'm so glad that it won. So it's a, you know, that era ended at the right time, but I'm glad that Titanic represents it in this context. I will admit, I will admit that Titanic has grown on me every single time that I've rewatched it. Mm, getting old and soft. <laughs> but uh, if Avatar 2 through 5 uh, show up at the Oscars, <laughs> I will be none too pleased. So I say that before seeing a single frame of them. I know. So, I, I stand by know. Avatar and I still like part of me thinks those movies maybe should never exist. But we'll talk about that in season eight of Little Gold Men or whenever those <laughs> movies manage to come out. <laughs> so that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, thanks everybody so much for listening. And please remember to rate and review us on iTunes. It helps us find new listeners. And uh, if you're a fan of Joanna from the podcast world, we might bring her back. This is pure bribery to get you to review us and keep listening to this podcast. <laughs> you can find both of us writing about everything Game of Thrones included at VanityFair.com and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Katie Rich and Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Joanna, take the moment to plug your Game of Thrones or any other podcast that you want to since there are lots of other places people can listen to you. Yeah, if you want to listen to me gush about Pedro Pascal from two seasons ago, <laughs> you can listen to Cast of Kings or Storm of Spoilers. Those are my two Game of Thrones podcasts. This episode was produced by Sam Dingman and edited by Tim Einenkel. And thanks to Laura Mayer and Andy Bowers at Panoply. And this week's award for best advice to aspiring YouTube stars goes to Joanna Robinson. I feel like if you're going to do Cats, you should do something completely bonkers. 